All right, let's open our Bibles this morning. We're in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 14 as we continue verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the book of Acts, looking at either uh, one event at a time or a couple of things that seem to go together. And that puts us in Acts 14, looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning. The topic of those verses, we'll see, is that after being rejected and run out of Iconium, Paul and Barnabas are nearly revered as gods in Lystra. And of course, the title of our message is Paul Revered. I'm especially happy with that one. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands." But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he, gave, uh, he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you for these uh, apostles, Lord, these missionaries and their work in these outlying areas. Uh, what a joy, Lord, to see the power of the gospel. It is your power unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And then, Lord, these many centuries later to realize that the same Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is being proclaimed all over the globe by faithful servants, Lord, whether missionaries officially or missionaries uh, unofficially, and that men and women who are in darkness of various kinds are being brought to the light and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that the believers here, Lord, would be wonderfully refreshed and encouraged, and if there are any here, Lord, that have not yet trusted you as their Savior, that they would be brought to an understanding 
of your death and resurrection on their behalf so that they may be loosed from their sins and saved for all eternity. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Reaction to Paul and Barnabas went from one extreme to another. At Iconium, they were slandered and defamed by the unbelieving Jews. A good word to describe how they were treated would be vilified. At Lystra, they were revered as gods by the unbelieving Gentiles. A good word to describe how they were treated would be venerated. Vilified one day, venerated the next. Oh, the mission life for me. This was serious mission work that kept Paul and Barnabas on top of their spiritual game. They literally never knew what was coming. Now, we may not be on the same kind of mission field as they were, but neither are we on the sidelines or in the stands. We are in the game. Wherever we find ourselves, that's our mission field. It's a serious mission, and we too should be on top of our spiritual game. Out in the field, people still vilify God's servants, and they still venerate God's servants. Both are errors that you do not want to be drawn into. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, don't let yourself be drawn into vilifying God's servants. And number two, don't let yourself be drawn into venerating God's servants. Let's talk about vilifying God's servants. This word vilify, it means to slander or to defame or to speak ill of. I wish we could say that this never happens in the church of Jesus Christ. Sadly, it does happen. And when it does, it threatens the work of edifying God's saints and evangelizing sinners. It has the tendency to bring that work to a halt. And so we, therefore, need to be ready for it. Paul and Barnabas had been expelled from Antioch of Pisidia for preaching the gospel. What an amazing variety of experiences these men had. They're preaching the gospel, kicked out of the city. Preaching the gospel, they're going to get stoned to death. Preaching the gospel, people want to worship them as gods. Next time we're together, Lord willing, we'll see that they, Paul was stoned probably to death as some of these Jews followed him there and stirred up people against him. And so literally, you really never knew what a day held if you were Paul the apostle or traveling with him. Undaunted, Having been expelled, they traveled to Iconium and went immediately to the Sabbath day service at the local synagogue. Verse 1, we pick up the story. Now, it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. As we've been seeing in past weeks, the synagogue was a great place to begin their ministry in a new city. There they would be able to address an audience already familiar with the Scriptures. They could prove from the Scriptures that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world promised by God. Another reason for starting in the synagogue with the Jews was that quite Frankly, if they began with the Gentiles, no Jews would listen to them. Gentiles didn't have the same kind of feeling for that, but a Jew had this prejudice. If you wanted to preach the gospel, uh, if you wanted to preach, you had to start with the Jew and then work out to the Gentile. Now, their teaching from Scripture and preaching about Jesus resulted in a great multitude, both of Jews and Greeks, believing the Greeks here refer to Gentiles in the synagogue who were converts or what we call proselytes to Judaism. 
They're going to be contrasted to unbelieving Gentiles in the rest of the city who were not attending the synagogue. And so in verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brethren. The brethren refers to the newly born again believers. Isn't it wonderful that when you get saved, God puts you into a family? There are a number of great metaphors to describe what it is to be a Christian. We're called the body of Christ, members of that mystical body with Jesus being the head. Uh, we are the building of God or the temple of God as we gather together and He inhabits the praises of His people. We are also a family of believers. And so whatever my natural family, uh, I come into a great spiritual family, a big family, where I have brothers and sisters of all ages, from all walks of life, from all ethnicities all over the world throughout all of history. And isn't it fun when you're somewhere and you see somebody wearing a Christian T-shirt and you go up and say, hey, praise the Lord. And, oh, and they get all excited, you know, because you've noticed their T-shirt. And then you have maybe no conversation, maybe a short conversation about the Lord. There is that spiritual connection as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, have you heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Well, the unbelieving Jews went to the Gentiles, whom they normally had no dealings with and despised, and they found support against the missionaries. They vilified Paul and Barnabas and the new converts in such strong language that Luke compared it to poisoning their minds. Verse 3, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, quite honestly, in a natural level, if somebody starts to vilify me and poison people's minds against me, my initial reaction is, well, then I'm through here. I'm all done. I'm leaving. Here, I, I came at my own expense, uh, at my own peril, in my own, you know, desire to just bring you the good news of salvation, to, to do something nice for you. And this is how you treat me? I'm going to shake the dust off my feet and leave. Well, that's not at all what Paul and Barnabas do. And there, you see something of a shepherd's heart in this statement. Paul and Barnabas not only didn't leave, they stayed there a long time in that really vicious atmosphere because they knew they had to protect and strengthen the believers during this attack. As hard as it might be on Paul and Barnabas, how much more difficult on a brand new young Christian to be vilified by the surrounding community. Oh, you're one of those Christians? No one's talking to them anymore. If they were Jewish, their own family was disowning them, and now the Gentiles were turning on them. And so Paul and Barnabas, they dug in. They said, hey, we're going to stay as long as it takes in order to get you to a point of strength and maturity. And they continued to do their regular ministry of speaking boldly in the Lord. There was no sense of, hey, let's tone things down a little. We're running into a lot of opposition here, so let's just kind of bring this, you know, internal and, and just minister amongst ourselves. No, they kept doing it. If you are ever vilified while doing the work of the Lord, you need to recognize it is a strategy to get you to stop and waste energy defending yourself against the attack. Instead, shake it off and keep doing your work for the Lord. 
It's, it can be hard to do, but it's a blessing. Now, God was bearing witness to the word of his grace. That means people were getting saved despite this vicious campaign against the brethren and their leaders. And God was also granting signs and wonders to be done by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. And so there was this kind of one-two punch going on. The people were getting saved, and as if that wasn't miraculous enough, wonders and signs were accompanying the ministry. You'd think that would silence the opposition. Well, it didn't. It made them all the more angry. In verse 4, the multitudes of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. The campaign of slander and backbiting and gossip caused division. It threw suspicion on the work of the Lord. I want you to note in passing that Luke calls both Paul and Barnabas apostles. He's using the word in the sense of them being messengers sent out from the church at Antioch to preach the gospel. Today, we would use the word missionaries in this context, and we do it because we don't want people to get confused. There are no apostles in the first century sense of the 12 and Paul, men who had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ and who had immediate authority from God to speak forth the word of God. Uh, and so a lot of churches, they, they, uh, they call their leaders apostles. Uh, it's a confusion. There, there isn't an unbroken succession of apostles from Paul. These men really were unique men. The, some of the gifts that they exercised and the abilities, they go on in the church, but there really are no apostles in the sense that if we were having a dispute and Paul the apostle came, he'd say, well, this is it. I've settled that. Now let's move on. Uh, and so we would use the word missionary. Verse 5, and when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and the surrounding region. Some of the Roman rulers of Iconium joined in against them. And I, I, I hesitate to wonder what does it mean to abuse and then stone them? I mean... <laughs> I mean, stoning is pretty abusive, if you ask me. You know, I mean, you know, the, but uh, they had some plans for these guys. Now, Paul and Barnabas fled, leaving a thriving church behind. Fearlessness doesn't mean foolishness. There's nobody more fearless than the Apostle Paul. Now, as we follow his journeys in this book, there are times that mobs are literally trying to tear him limb from limb. And he says, hey, let me talk to them, please. I want to share the gospel with them. And he was a, an, a, a, you know, uh, Agabus would say, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you. And he said, yeah, well, that's where I'm going. I mean, he was a fearless servant of the Lord. But he must have received from leading from the Holy Spirit that his time in Iconia was over and that they should move on and leave the church behind and continue their mission. Vilifying Christians is a favorite strategy of our enemy. I myself have more examples than I care to give you in my life toward, and towards my family. And while it hurts those who are targeted, that's really not what's being taught here. What's being said is that it is harmful to the person who listens to this kind of talk because it poisons the mind. 
And, and so a person, in, in, in this sense, they're talking about unbelievers going to other unbelievers and poisoning their minds against Jesus Christ and against His servants. But whether it's to an unbeliever or to a believer, the person who listens to gossip and slander and backbiting, that person is ingesting poison into their mind. Now, people don't come up to you and, you know, like this with a big syringe in their hand. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's fine. Oh, what do you got there? I have a syringe of poison, and I'd like to inject your mind with this right now. What do you think about that? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I'll pass on that for right now. But when we listen to gossip and slander and backbiting, the Scripture says that is what's happening. We are taking small or large doses of poison into our bodies. Now, I don't know anybody who comes across poison and says, I wonder how much of that I can take without really it affecting me too bad and starts drinking thimblefuls of poison along the way. I mean, poison is poison, and, and we don't like that. I don't want to get to the point where I have to call poison control. I, I just, you know, that's a call I don't want to make and stuff. And so this is a very strong word because I don't think sometimes we understand how difficult this is. I've talked to Christians who have had their minds poisoned about various individuals, whether it's myself or someone in our leadership, or someone in our church, or some other Christian, and they've just been listening to things that are untrue, that are slanted, and when you talk to them, you can't get through to them anymore. It's like they're in some state in which they can't really think clearly for themselves because of the, the poison is affecting them. And, and it's very difficult for a person who's been poisoned that way. I mean, you can, you can recover from a lot of different poisonings, but why would you want to? You know, and some poisoning, I mean, I watch these, I don't know why, why do I watch this stuff on the Discovery Channel, you know? And some, like, they, they had a show not too long ago on the world's deadliest uh, uh, poisons, you know, and, and these spiders, some crazy spider in Australia that's like the, you know, the size of a, oh, it's, this is it right here. Anyway, and I mean, it bites you and then it just, your flesh dies. I mean, your whole body starts to die from having this. And I'm thinking, I don't want that. And so Luke is saying, don't let your mind become poisoned. It's a terrible thing. Mind is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> and so we need to be sensitive to slander and gossip and backbiting. Uh, and and, and when, we need to avoid it like we would any other dangerous poison. Stop people. Hey, I don't want to hear that. Have you talked to that person? Oh, I... I no, I'm not going to tell that story. Anyway, just... Be aware of this. I, I don't have time. I'm, I don't have time to have a poisoned mind. My mind is going fast enough. Uh, I, I've been doing some crazy things, just forgetting things and, not, you know, scary. But uh, uh, I think I'm here. Is this Hanford? This is Hanford, right? Okay. And this is Calvary Chapel. Okay. And I am telling you that we, you know, I'm the guy that was in the newspaper. Is that? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to get that in. I didn't know how. But anyway, so let's move on to uh, verses 7 through 18. 
Don't let yourself be drawn into venerating God's servants. One author described Paul by saying he preached at Athens and was mocked. He preached at Jerusalem and was mobbed. He preached at Rome and was martyred. Woe is me, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 9, if I preach not the gospel. And so, having had this terrible experience at Antioch of Pisidia, and having had a worse experience at Iconium, he now goes out into a pagan area and does what? Continues to preach the gospel. Hey, if I go out to Lystra and Derby, as we'll see in a minute, and there's no synagogue, I'm going to take a vacation. But Paul says, no, we're going it, to, it, it's more difficult, but we're still going to preach the gospel because woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. And so in verse 6, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. No mention of them going to the synagogue, and that tells us that there were not even 10 male Jews in that region. They were way out of any comfort zone they may have developed for themselves. Now, it sounds funny to talk about Paul having a comfort zone because of all the problems that dogged him along the way. But like anybody else, hey, they had gotten into a flow of ministry. Go to a town, find the synagogue. Go to a town, preach in the synagogue. Go to a town, get invited to talk at the synagogue. Go to Lystra, no synagogue. And so now they're out of their element and they're having to be stretched even farther. God wants to stretch us out of all the comfort zones we develop for ourselves. He really does. And, and you think, well, I, I don't feel really comfortable. Uh, well, then God is stretching you, and that's a good thing. But we, we have a tendency to settle in, and we always need to be looking at the horizon to see where God would send us and what he would do with us. And so in verse 8, in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped and walked. Now, Paul was probably speaking in the open marketplace. Think of the Monday sale. Paul couldn't find a synagogue, so he went to the Monday sale. And, and there were the merchants and the vendors, and he just started to preach the gospel. I don't know if he was sharing person to person or if he got up on a soapbox or whatever. And there he sees this lifelong cripple, almost certainly a beggar. He heard Paul. Now, don't try to make too much of this statement that he had faith to be healed. There's no teaching here or anywhere else in the Bible that a healing is a matter of how much faith you have. God describes what he means. The man had faith to be healed. That means that Paul discerned that God wanted to do a healing right then, and the man had a believing heart, and God, all of that converged. It wasn't that he was a guy that was full of, I mean, he didn't even know the Lord. How could he have faith, you know, at that point? And so, it's not how much faith you have. And you may not think that's any big deal, but I know dozens of people who have been told that they just don't have enough faith to be healed of whatever it is they're going through, of their disease or their financial condition. Now, I can talk to, I, I can tell you about one gal that I visited in a mental hospital who had tried to kill herself because her church told her she didn't have enough faith to not be kicked out of her house and for her finances to get turned around. And she believed her church and its leadership. And when she went back to them, having been evicted, they said, well, you don't have enough faith. 
I would have said, well, you guys don't have enough compassion, but they just left her at the end. She, she tried to commit suicide, and she was shipwrecked in her faith because that was their teaching. And so this is a very serious topic. Paul determined that this was what God wanted to do. God granted a gift of faith and the miracle of healing. Verse 11, now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. The Roman poet Ovid records the Lystran legend that one day Zeus and Hermes disguised themselves as men and visited the region. They were treated inhospitably by everyone except an old couple named Philemon and Baucis. Thus, they did what Greek gods loved to do. They sent a flood, killing everyone except Philemon and Baucis. Afterward, they turned the old couple's humble college into their temple, and they appointed them priest and priestess. With that frame of reference, the Lystrans assumed Zeus and Hermes were at it again. In their mythology, Hermes was the chief spokesperson, and so Paul was thought to be Hermes and Barnabas thought to be Zeus. They met, these men, of course, were not gods, but they were the messengers of the one true God. Verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out. Not knowing the language, Paul and Barnabas didn't immediately realize they had been chosen the next Lycaonian idol. Get it? People were texting in the crowd, you know. Text. Hermes to 753. Anyway, so, so they're just trying to talk, you know, in the common tongue, and all the Lycaonians going, and they're trying to make them gods. That's a little Lycaonian I learned just for you. Once they had the attention of the crowd, they spoke boldly against idolatry. Verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We are men with the same nature as you, and we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Now, I, I have to understand that this is very strong language because we were told that the priest of Zeus with oxen and garlands was, was right there. And Paul, whether he gestured or not, he's saying, you need to turn from these useless things. I mean, this is their religion. And they seemed like they took it pretty seriously because they were thinking that Hermes and Zeus were in their midst. And so this is real straightforward, blunt speech on the part of Paul. Sometimes the most tactful approach is to be blunt. I mean, we want to be all things to all people. We want to be tactful. We don't want to unduly offend anyone ever. You know, we want to draw people to Jesus Christ. But there are times when you just have to tell people the blunt truth about what it is they're doing or what it is they believe. And when you're about to be worshipped as a god, that's a good time to do that. Uh, so the next time you're in that situation, uh, remember this. Paul and Barnabas appeal to the Lystrans to look at creation. Creation is a witness that there must be a God. Design demands a designer. We have a tremendous witness that we don't always use with people. It's weakened because so many people grow up believing the theory of evolution. And, and without knowing any of the facts 
and, and without knowing that today most uh, scientists, well, I shouldn't say most, I don't want to exaggerate, but many prominent scientists who are not even Christians can prove that evolution isn't true. The evolutionists cannot prove it is, but these other guys on a molecular level can prove that it can't be true. It could never be true. And we won't even change the textbooks to reflect errors that we know are in the books. And so it is hard to use creation as a witness because the devil has gotten his hands all around that and, you know, people think you're kind of crazy. But if you can get through that, creation is a powerful witness. It's clear that there is a system going on, that, that something, you know, really orderly is happening and, and everything couldn't have evolved at the same time just in the same way. And, and so it's a witness that there is a God. All men everywhere for all time have had this witness of creation. It's not a full and complete witness, but it's enough to cause any rational person to seek after more truth about the living God. Sadly, men do not want to be subject to God, and that's why they turn from Him and they begin to worship the creation itself rather than the Creator. And that's why it says in verse 16, in bygone generations, God allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Why does God allow that? Why does he allow men to turn from him and worship the creature rather than the creator? Well, because the alternative is judgment. Judgment is coming. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. And it's going to be terrible and awful when it comes. And so God allows this world to go on, men to reject him and worship the creature rather than the creator, because he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and eternal life. Terrible things happen in our world as God waits minute by minute and day by day. More people are diagnosed with cancer. More people die violent deaths. Uh, whatever it is that, that you think is terrible and awful, that has happened in the last 10 minutes because God didn't rapture the church. And the tribulation hasn't begun. And so you see the alternative. God has done everything that he can do. He did what he promised he would do. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for the sins of the world, to rise from the dead so that all men everywhere can be drawn to him, lifted up on the cross, have their sins forgiven, and share eternity in heaven. And God waits and he waits and he waits. And so when it says here that men have chosen to walk in their own ways and that God allows it, the problems in our world today are not God's doing. They're the natural result of sin coming into God's creation. God will redeem His creation. It will be perfect again. In the meantime, His long-suffering waits. And so in verse 17, Nevertheless, He did not leave Himself without witness in that He did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Even though men reject Him, God goes on being good. As much as men have tried to deny Him and eliminate Him, he continues to witness to them in the orderly processes of the natural world we depend upon. Again, if you read some of the portions of the Revelation, some of the judgments that are coming are the disruption of the natural order of things, the sun being darkened. The, you know, people won't know what day it is. I mean, it, God is gracious, and in His common grace, He lets the world go on as we reach out to others 
and seek to bring them to Jesus Christ. The article that I referenced, you know, that they did in the paper, I was talking to the guy, uh, the interviewer, and he said, well, if you really believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back at any minute, why don't you sell everything and, you know, literally live on a mountain and just wait for the Lord? And I said, well, I think that is our heart as Christians, but as soon as you think about the Lord coming back and wanting to do that, you think, I'll do that as soon as I talk to my neighbor who's not a Christian because I wouldn't want that person to be left behind. After all, I need to tell them. Then you tell your neighbor, and if he becomes a Christian or she becomes a Christian, you think, well, I guess we need to tell our neighbor across the street now. And, and the idea is, yeah, I'm ready to go up on the mountain and wait for the Lord, sell everything and wait, but I can't because I have the Lord's compassion and I want to minister to other people because I don't want them left behind. And, and that's what we're all about as Christians. In verse 18, with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. These guys were hardcore Zeus fans. They wore their Zeus suits. <laughs> Hermes helmets, you know, whatever it was. And uh, the missionaries were successful at stopping the sacrifice. Sadly, no mention of any conversions. We don't want to make an argument from silence, but we just we don't know exactly what happened here at this point. Now, we still idolize people. I'm not just talking about American Idol or sports fan people or anything like that. You know, that's a, that's a whole separate reality. This happens among Christians, or at least professing Christians. There are always certain charismatic preachers who become wildly popular. They appeal to both Christians and non-believers by presenting a watered-down gospel that teaches material prosperity and human potential. And people, whether they're, the events are free or they pay to go see them, they fill these stadiums, and at the end of it, they've heard that Jesus wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And if you apply these three or five or ten principles... Uh, you know, which are none of which have anything to do with sin or repentance or uh, personal righteousness or anything like that, then you too can be healthy and wealthy. If you are well taught in the Bible, you're not likely to be drawn into venerating these men and women. I'm not worried about you guys. But likely you know people who do venerate them. Just this week, several people came to me and they said, hey, you know, this friend of mine came to me and they said they were going to this evangelistic crusade. And then I found out where they were going and it, it grieved me because there was, I knew there would be no evangelism there, just a health and wealth and prosperity message. And so we, we run into these situations, and they're pretty serious because it is a dangerous kind of an idolatry, uh, and, and we want to be able to tell others without immediately turning them off that they need to seek the truth. And so I would suggest to you that you just realize this is a real problem and pray and ask God how you can tell them the truth uh, in a loving uh, kind way, but at some point you might just have to be blunt like the Apostle Paul and say, look, you know, bottom line is this, if they're not preaching this, it's another gospel, it's a false gospel, it's a heresy, and I'm concerned about your soul because the issue here isn't uh, the square footage of my house on earth, the issue is whether or not I have a mansion in heaven that's being prepared for me by Jesus Christ. And so we're talking about very serious things. And so to apply God's word today, don't get drawn into vilifying your brothers and sisters. It only hurts you 
because you are ingesting a terrible mind poison. And be aware of your friends and family being drawn into venerating men and women who are serving a watered-down version of the gospel at best and a false gospel at worst. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, bringing us into this story. And though this happened to Paul and Barnabas so many uh, years ago, and on the surface it doesn't seem like we have a connection either to the synagogue at Iconium or to the idol worship of Lystra, Lord, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I pray that we would guard our minds, and that means being very careful about what we listen to and take in because we, we don't have time to be polluted or poisoned when there is a world that needs to hear about Christ and when there are other believers that need to be built up in their faith. And so help us to take those stands when necessary and to be blessed and to have healthy uh, Christian lives. And Lord, if uh, we know anybody who is venerating uh, people who maybe aren't even Christians in some cases, putting them up on pedestals, Lord, that we would be able to go to them with a, a, a defense of our faith and a compassion of bringing them into the kingdom of God. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. We're here to pray for you. Just come on forward and uh, uh, pray with one of the guys that's down here. Uh, if you're not a Christian, we'd love to pray with you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Wednesday night, we're having a blast at our Ignite service. Uh, even if you can't regularly come on Wednesday night, at least come and check it out so that you can invite folks out and know what they're getting into and, and the kind of thing that the Lord is doing to minister to His people on Wednesday nights. Uh, breakfast burritos, I don't know how you can even just, I mean, the anticipation, the excitement of it. I know some of you are trying to call your orders in uh, during the message, you know, but uh, somebody ordered 10, like, before they came in this morning, and so I, I hope there's enough. But uh, anyway, it's always fun. It, rather than get it to go, hang out here. There's plenty of places to hang out and to fellowship and to minister. Our ongoing exhortation to you, introduce yourself to at least one person that you've never seen before and see if the Lord might spark a relationship as a result of that. May God bless you. May God keep you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.